and welcome to another episode of our EEF podcast, Evidence into Action. This is a really exciting milestone um, of a podcast. It's about a significant update to the EEF toolkit that's been um, in development for 10 years and, and more recently three years of um, really significant development, unpacking a, a kind of a wealth of research and we're going to explore that with one of the key authors, Professor Steve Higgins from Durham University, who's led a fantastic team to make this update. And also my co-host is an EEF colleague, um, the esteemed uh, John Kay. John, do you want to introduce yourself? Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I'm John. I'm Head of Evidence Synthesis here at the EEF. And uh, John, uh, another kind of huge expert on the toolkit. So I feel really privileged um, to get to get these insights and um, we're going to speak to Steve and kind of unpack the toolkit and and, and the history of it and, and the more recent um, changes and and the, the new potential of the toolkit which I think is most exciting and, and we'll go on to um, speak to colleagues from schools um, Sarah Green and Julie Kettlewell who'll give that perspective of school leaders and teachers working with evidence and working with the EF toolkit to try and put that evidence into action. So without further ado, I'll introduce um, Steve, Professor Steve Higgins. Um, Steve, uh, talk a little bit just about yourself. And, and, and first, um, there's a real, there is a real history, isn't it, isn't it here, of, of 10 years of this toolkit. So perhaps some of your background, but also where that kind of lines up with this kind of life's work of the toolkit. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I'm Steve Higgins. I'm Professor of Education at Durham University. My background was originally as a primary school teacher. Uh, and when I first moved into higher education, I got really frustrated at the amount of studies that I found when I was working with uh, teachers in training uh, that would have helped me improve my classroom practice when I was a teacher. And that kind of set up a, a bit of a mission to try and find ways to summarize and communicate evidence uh, in a way that helped decision-making. Um, I was lucky enough in about 2010 to be commissioned by the Sutton Trust to develop the Pupil Premium Toolkit as the uh, English uh, education system was considering adopting the Pupil Premium. Uh, and what we were really trying to do there was just summarize evidence in a way that might help people reflect on how that additional resource could be spent. Uh, and there were some obvious things that, uh, like reducing class sizes that everyone thought was a good idea, that probably are, but are very expensive. Whereas other things like um, intensive tuition, particularly one to two, one to three, uh, seemed to be a much better bet in terms of what was likely to get value from that pupil premium. And then, of course, the EEF was founded, uh, a, a collaboration between uh, Impetus and the Sutton Trust, uh, and the EEF adopted the Pupil Premium Toolkit and uh, supported me in developing it into the Teaching and Learning Toolkit. Uh, and that was really a way to try and present evidence in a simple enough form, but with enough detail that could inform discussion and decision-making in schools. I, I believe passionately that the evidence will never dictate what you must do, but it can be very helpful in getting you to think about what might be beneficial in a particular circumstance. You've got to take professional judgment and context along with the evidence in making those decisions. And that's really underpinned my thinking about 
um, my work on evidence with EEF over the last 10 years. And, and just to pick up on the point about, about this 10 years, Steve, so one of the one of my reflections, so when the toolkit, um, you know, that kind of history of the toolkit is part of my history in schools and, and being exposed as a school leader to different sources of evidence. And the toolkit was one of those um, earlier sources that really helped kind of challenge some of my thinking. You talk about class size. I think as a school leader, I just made the assumption, well, class size reductions always good. You know, how could it not be? But then you walk into that complexity and recognize, okay, well, we might need more teachers and actually what habits change, what changes in the classroom with class size. So it's one, it, it felt to me like some, a really good starting point as a busy school leader to help me kind of delve into that complexity. But then perhaps there's a story in the last 10 years about our system in England, particularly where evidence has become much more prominent. I, you know, in the, in the last 10 years, we've got now lots of sources of evidence and, and almost the, the detail and nuance of the toolkit has developed uh, in, on a similar kind of path. What are your reflections on how England, in England and schools and school leaders are engaging with evidence and a lot of them are engaging with the toolkit and, and lots of other sources? What's, what's your view of that and how, how have you kind of perceived it? Yes, this is very much kind of personal take because I think England and the UK in general is slightly unusual. Um, that's partly to do with kind of wider government policy, the setting up of the What Work Centres, of which, of course, EF became one for schooling, um, but also the People Premium strategy in England required schools to report on and justify how they were spending their uh, additional resource. And I think that also then focused schools in trying to find sources of evidence, uh, I, I suspect retrospectively, to justify what they wanted to do, at least certainly initially. But then that set up a context and a culture um, uh, with something like ResearchEd being a really good example of characterising this shift uh, that meant that schools became more interested in, in evidence, uh, particularly thinking about the, the relative benefits of different approaches. And again, I think that was something that was different in what we were trying to do. Usually what researchers do is they tell you that their particular approach or intervention or this particular way of doing things is the best way to do it, and that's what you should focus on. Whereas a toolkit tries to be a bit more nuanced and say you could do this, this is what the evidence says, how robust it is, this is how much it costs. But there are also these other options that you could consider. And I think that focus on choice and justifying the relative benefits is what we'd perhaps been missing previously in that story of evidence. So, so my last question is kind of focus on, on the history of the toolkit, if you like, is it's now moving towards a more sophisticated place in terms of what you can do with it and how you can access it and what you can find out from it. Do you think that sophistication is, is in part a kind of matching up the, a more sophisticated view of evidence from, from school leaders and teachers? I, I hope so. Uh, uh, by and large, we've tended to be able to, I think, so far at least, to be able to keep half a step ahead of the kind of evidence ecology, uh, for want of a better expression, uh, in that we've been able to provide additional detail, we've been able to expand the areas of the toolkit uh, in a way that supported that kind of growing interest in evidence. But the previous version of the toolkit had reached uh, the limit, if you like, of um, what was really possible 
by looking at reviews of reviews, which is essentially what it was, combining effects from different meta-analyses into an overall estimate. That didn't let us kind of burrow into the fine-grained detail of the variation between studies, uh, impacts in different subjects or different lengths or different ages. All of those sorts of features kind of got averaged out as we combined effects. So we're only able to give those broad top-level comparative indicators. Uh, and clearly now there's increasing interest in evidence. And I certainly think that England's a good place to be trying to produce this more fine-grained account. The challenge, of course, is it makes it more complex. It means that there aren't really kind of simple, straightforward, you should do this on Wednesday. Uh, it, it's much more about um, this seems to be the case for this group. This seems to work better in this subject. And that kind of quality of nuance, I think, the profession is very much ready for, but it does mean it's going to be slightly confusing, I think, at times as to what you should perhaps, what's the best bet in a particular area, because that might depend on what you're teaching and what age you're teaching. I guess reflecting on, um, on that big change, Steve, and, and that need to develop, can you talk us through a bit about what is it that... that that's happened over the last three years? What is the big step change? I think you've, you've sometimes described this as, as toolkit version three. So, so what's the, the key differences that are going to make this more actionable and, and more accurate for teachers? Yes, I guess it's version three because the first version was basically on paper, paper-based reports. Um, uh, and then EF uh, has supported me and my team at Durham uh, in developing an online version, which was therefore much easier to update and kind of add in new strands and, and expand over time. The big change is what I was sort of hinting at before, is we've moved from a review of reviews to uh, a single level, single study level review in each of the different areas. So what we've done, I describe it as unzipping those reviews. We've taken those underpinning meta-analyses and systematic reviews, and we've identified all of the single studies that are in those. This is about 350 different uh, research reviews. Uh, and then we've applied consistent inclusion criteria to those studies. So we know we've got a more comparable set. In the previous version, there might've been some studies of higher education or from different educational jurisdictions or, or types of education. Um, uh, and then we've been able to code those studies uh, consistently. So we've been able to look at applying a consistent framework of criteria so we can classify the, the research in all of those studies. So if you like, we've unzipped those studies, we've reviewed them, and then we've zipped up again the ones we think are most applicable to the teaching and learning toolkit in terms of uh, age and focus. In terms of, of teachers and school leaders using the toolkit, how's that benefiting them? Uh, I hope uh, that, that what, what it'll do is it'll provoke further discussion um, and reflection about what drives variation um, in each of the strands. Because previously, if you like, we had that bold average and the kind of relative differences on the introductory page, and then some generally, um, well, fairly general advice about what we thought was likely to be um, useful in terms of implementation. Now we can give much clearer information about uh, how effective it is, um, 
what drives variation in, 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 in those studies. So whether it seems to be more beneficial with younger or older learners or in reading or mathematics. Um, we can also look at disadvantage and try and pull out that detail where possible, although that was one of my disappointments in the, the analysis as a whole, although there are indications that isn't systematically done across education research studies. So that information is still a bit, a bit patchy. Um, but we can then also um, make kind of clearer points of recommendation about what we think it is that schools might need to consider or think about when they're choosing to adopt a particular approach. So it's that kind of more fine-grained nature of the information. In some ways, it puts an increased challenge or burden, I think, on the user because it isn't so straightforward. But I, I think the uh, those, particularly in schools, will, will appreciate the nuance that that gives uh, and the indications of where it's likely to be more beneficial, but it might need some more evaluation or checking in schools. And we've talked about nuance and school leaders interpreting the toolkit. And you can, you can often see where the different strands of the toolkit interact and they might even overlap somewhat. And what, what's your perspective? And, and could you share a little bit more about how we make those classifications, how you decide upon those strands? And then I know that can be tricky, but also where they might interact and intersect. And, and I think it's a really interesting area. Yes, that's, a, I think, still a real challenge in terms of thinking about what are the categories that are most useful to schools and school leaders uh, to create something like the toolkit. And the initial classification came from the kinds of things that policymakers and school leaders were talking about, how they might spend the pupil premium. And then uh, we also looked to find other areas where we thought there was um, research evidence that would be particularly um, valuable in making those decisions then over time, we've responded to uh, areas of interest from um, schools or changes in policy that have um, helped to identify other areas where that evidence is useful. It feels like um, building on what Alex was talking about very early on, that that complicated nature of the evidence and, and the messiness of the evidence space, it interacting with the, the expertise and eagerness of the profession to engage with the evidence, is a real theme. And I think one of the things that, that really excites me about the new toolkit is that move from here's the, the average impact for something like peer tutoring or, or something like feedback to let's begin talking about the messiness behind that average and beginning to see what the data tells us about the different approaches. So, so we're, we're perhaps moving past the point where we say, isn't it interesting that feedback's positive to, to beginning to say a bit more about what aspects of feedback or what aspects of peer tutoring um, are the things that make that practice more positive? Is, is that fair to say, Steve? Yes, I, I, absolutely. I mean, my, um, my hope is that as we investigate the toolkit in more detail, we might be able to identify some of the active ingredients, if you like, that drive the different uh, types of improvements across the different areas of the toolkit. So as we start to be able to look for these associations between different features of interventions, we might be able to start to come up with a, a, a causal model. What, what actually is it that you do that makes it different? That's been one of my obsessions in teaching and learning. Uh, it, it, unless you change something about what you do in the classroom, particularly in terms of the learner, what the learner does, you know, they need to spend more time or 
do something more efficiently or more intensively. Something needs to change in the learner's behaviours. And so taking a step back and thinking about what is it about this intervention? What changes does it bring about uh, in, in terms of teaching and learning, I, I think is very much the direction I want to go. Um, that's not always straightforward because we tend to say that something like peer tutoring works. Well, peer tutoring, does it? What do you mean by works? The changes that you bring about by introducing peer tutoring in the classroom, uh, on average, seem to bring about more learning in those classrooms. But exactly what it is that changes is it this metacognitive awareness of the tutor? Is it increased practice in terms of the quantity of reading or mathematics that students do? We don't really know. So starting to be able to dig under the under the bonnet, if you like, of these different approaches to understand that, uh, I think, is the, the, the next step uh, in terms of developing the toolkit, but also working with schools uh, as they start to explore those issues. Because at this stage, I guess, we're starting to give indications of the areas where we think they might be, but they're tentative at the moment in, in terms of what we know. So being able to explore that in more detail is, is very much the area I, I hope the toolkit develops in. I guess some of the, the big changes that we're seeing um, with this toolkit uh, relaunch, one of the ones that people might have questions about is the new zero padlock strands. Um, what's, the, what's the thinking behind beginning to sometimes not communicate uh, amongst impacts when we've, when we've looked through the evidence? That's part, I think, of the overall philosophy of the toolkit. It's always been, rather than just looking at where there is evidence and saying something by synthesising that, which is the approach of some kind of clearing houses, it's to take areas of interest to the profession and to policy and to say, what do we know about this topic or this area? The complicated thing then is, what do you say when there isn't sufficient evidence to come up with what you think is a sufficiently robust finding? And that's why we've decided to go with this kind of null uh, or kind of empty, no, no synthesis. So when we've looked in a particular area for single studies, when we haven't been able to find sufficient studies to give what we think is a, a, a robust uh, overall synthesis, we've said... We don't think there's sufficient evidence in this area. Uh, we think, describe what the area is and what, what evidence there is, but we don't think it's responsible to say that this is the overall effect. I think it's important to have areas where you do say that rather than just omitting them from the toolkit, because it's important to know what you don't know as well as what you think you do. So that range, if you like, now goes from areas in the toolkit where we don't think it's reasonable to come up with an overall pooled effect, where we simply haven't been able to find sufficient robust studies, right through to areas where the evidence is, has accumulated uh, over 30, 40 years and is relatively robust and secure. And, and talking of that security, Steve, one of the, the features of the toolkit right from the start has been the padlock rating system. How's that changed with this relaunch? In the previous version, we were giving padlocks based on the reviews, the number of reviews and the quality of those reviews. So it was based on the underpinning meta-analyses. Now we've been able to identify the underlying studies, all of the single studies that um, made up those effects in the different reviews. We've been able to look at the security based on the security of the underlying studies. So we know, for example, how many studies are randomized in each area. We know what percentage are independent evaluations. 
we know what the typical attrition is in a particular area. So we've been able to take features of um, the underlying robustness or, or quality of those studies and then look across the strand as a whole and come up with an overall padlock rating based on the underpinning studies rather than the underpinning reviews. Thanks. And, and, and one other big change is the, the loss of some of the topics in the toolkit. So, so one of the things that people might notice in particular is the, the fact that we don't have a digital technology strand anymore. Um, what's the story behind um, the, the evidence base there? Yes, well, as someone who's most of my research career has been in researching digital technologies in classrooms, uh, it was one of the areas I was least happy with anyway, because what is digital technology as a whole? Teacher use, pupil use, different types of technology that changes over time. And what do you mean that digital technology? It's like saying do blackboards work or do pen and paper work? Um, so I was always a bit unhappy with just how broad a field that was and how hard it was to dig in to provide messages. What we've been able to do in uh, using single studies, if we, we've been able to look, say, in collaborative learning, at the studies that involve digital technology and have been able to identify those and then look to see whether or not the studies with digital technology uh, and collaborative learning are associated with higher or lower effect sizes. In homework, for example, studies involving digital technology are associated with slightly lower effect sizes than the strand as a whole. Now, that's interesting and useful for schools to know. I'm absolutely not saying don't use digital technology when you're developing homework, and particularly as schools have had to over the last uh, 18 months or so, but perhaps some cautions around how that's done and some attention to uh, what might make the difference between homework with and without digital technology is worth reflecting on for schools. And just in terms of, I think the development of the toolkit, so having an implementation section, more, you know, the precision of, of the strand itself, and then the ability to dive into it, it all indicates uh, there's more usefulness and, and more ability for professional judgment to be applied and for the, the nuance to be explored. Do you have a kind of a vision of how you'd like to see the, the toolkit used by, you know, kind of school leaders, teachers, kind of, um, even policymakers, do you have have that vision in your mind of the ideal? I, I think uh, informing um, decision making, whether that's at policy level or practice level, and being aware of both the strengths but also the limitations of this aggregation of evidence. Uh, and I think we're already starting to see some of those conversations happening, particularly in schools, um, where people are aware of that nuance and aware that this is what happens on average for other teachers in other schools, often in the past, how likely is it that's gonna happen for me with my class of 25 to 30 pupils? Uh, and, and I think that professional judgment is always going to be required. Recontextualizing uh, evidence from other settings is always going to require that professional judgment. I think in giving, if you like, a range of options, it also helps develop professional responsibility around, like choosing something that you think will work for your school and then committing to make it work. Because for me, teaching is a profession where you have to be committed to what you want to do. You can't say, well, so-and-so says this works, so I'm just going to let it happen and roll in my classroom. Teaching is not like that. I think making positive decisions on the basis of evidence and on the basis of the context in which you work and your professional knowledge and experience 
to come up with what you think is the most responsible decision and then committing to make that work in, in your classroom or school is for me how evidence works. And I've just got one final question to ask Stephen. Uh, it, it comes back to this point about um, Toolkit 3.0. Um, and actually, you might just want to kind of, you know, lie down in a dark room, the very thoughts of kind of any, any future of the toolkit. But do you have any visions or thinking about um, the future development of the toolkit? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. T tons of ideas about where <laughs> want to go next. Um, this is just the first stage, if you like, this unzipping and rezipping process. Um, because the meta-analyses are kind of scattered over time, I want to make sure we've got as consistent an evidence base across all of the areas of the strands as possible. And I think of that as some backfilling, making sure we haven't missed studies. And once we've done that, then we can just look for new studies as they're published and update the toolkit as some kind of massive um, living review. So that, that's kind of where I, I'm, I'm keen to get to, to support EEF in its work. I'm also keen that we develop ways to make the evidence within the database more transparent. So can we develop some um, simple dashboards that would let people run their own queries, that would let them create their own kind of custom toolkit? And it may even be possible in the future to combine the evidence the EEF is generating on educational trials and data in something like the National People Database to think about, okay, what does the evidence say looks like will be the best interventions for my school based on the history and profile of my school? So it might be possible to join together different sources of data to be able to make that kind of targeting, if you like, or identification of best bets uh, a, a bit more um, based on um, data from the history of a school. So, yeah, ton, tons of ideas about what, what to do and where to go. Uh, the question is just uh, how feasible are they? How long will they take? Uh, and can I persuade EEF to support me in, in developing that work? Well, I... I it's really exciting and and the current updates really exciting and move things forward you know the, the development in the last decade and then you know seeing seeing how much use and, and how how precise you can be now and, and the notion of that going even further is just really exciting but but it just remains for me to say thank you thank you for being on this podcast and, and sharing um, all of your insights and and this kind of amazing development of work but also thank you for this toolkit because it, it really is a I think yourself and there's a really big team um, that it's really a global development that's quite unique I think um, and and quite a privilege and to to kind of see this development and to hear from the horse's mouth. Yes thanks Alex I do need to acknowledge the support of my team at Durham the the tireless army of coders that have been extracting the data from studies and the support of um, EF and the, the team at EF in, in pulling us all together to create the websites. Um, I, I'm really pleased with how it looks and I just hope that it encourages people to think about uh, talking about evidence and making decisions and thinking about the best way to make those decisions on the basis of the evidence that we have. That's great. Thank you, Steve. So I'm really pleased to now introduce our next guests, uh, school leaders who are really well versed in evidence, got specialist areas. Um, I'll let them, of course, introduce themselves. So um, first, I'll introduce Sarah Green. Sarah, can you tell us about yourself? 
Yeah, hi Alex. Yeah, I'm Sarah Green and I'm an assistant head teacher um, in South Manchester for a growing multi-academy trust. Um, in terms of the context, um, we work with mainstream secondary and um, mainstream special schools. Um, and in my role with the Manchester Research School, I've also done quite a bit of work with primary schools and um, and most recently done some transition work around um, reading at the transition with Manchester City Council, um, where we reached kind of 6,000 year sixes, um, which was fabulous. And you've just joined the EF as content specialist for literacy, which we're really pleased about. I have, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Julie Kettlewell, if you introduce yourself. Of course. Thanks, Alex. So a bit like Sarah, I wear multiple hats. Um, so... I have also recently joined the team as content specialist for learning behaviours for the EEF. Um, I also, for the past few years, have been the assistant director at Huntington Research School. Um, so really working with, with a range of other schools across different phases. Um, and then within my own school at um, Huntington Secondary School in York, um, working there as assistant head teacher and teacher of psychology as well. Okay, great. And all of that variety around psychology and kind of learning behaviours and, and literacy and school leadership. There's, there's so much in there that I'm sure will will come out in our discussion of the toolkit and more. And, and just my first question. So the toolkit is on this kind of 10 year journey and development and, and version three of the toolkit's just been released and it's got more nuance and more and more detail to it and and better access to specific evidence for school leaders. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey in terms of uh, as a teacher and school leader accessing evidence? Why, you know, where did that start? You know, kind of what was it that triggered it and, and, and where are you now with that kind of using evidence and, and translating that to practice? I think for me, um, in terms of being a research school, we, we started talking about evidence, engaging with that. Um, and I think initially that, that was quite a small core team of people who were starting to do that. And then what we've seen is, is that's really started to run on a bigger scale through the school and, um, and, and trying to get as many teachers as possible to, to engage with that. Um, I think in terms of your question about how things, things have changed over time, um, I know certainly I've noticed that there is a better engagement from um, school practitioners at wanting to engage with evidence, wanting to understand it better. And I think that, that's largely in part to things like the toolkit, which make it more accessible to them. Um, and so suddenly, rather than thinking, oh, engaging with evidence means I have to read research papers, which I don't have time to do, you know, in my, in my really busy school life, this, this really enables them to engage with that um, as I say, in a much more accessible way. So I think that's a real positive that, that I've seen and people wanting to discuss evidence more and really think about, you know, how can I use this evidence to improve my own teaching practice and school leaders as well, really thinking about how they can do that um, it, as, as best possible. I think where we're still at, though, is that I think it's still so ingrained within us, within schools, that we want change now. You know, we, we care about the children that we're teaching. We want the best possible outcomes for them right now. And I think that the challenge still there is making people realise that actually we need to be patient with these things and engaging with evidence takes time and we need to delve deeper and also change what happened overnight because none of us want to hear that. 
Um, so I think that I've certainly seen real positives, um, but I still think there's some challenges and that that can lead to people um, disengaging a bit with the evidence because they're like, well, that's not the answer I wanted, which is completely understandable. Sure, sure. So I do agree with Julie in the sense that we've come a long way, um, but there's still some work to be done in developing understanding of evidence and what that actually means for, for school leaders and for teachers and what is evidence in the classroom what does that look like and also with tackling the challenges that come with implementing new evidence and new strategies also. That's really interesting and it's it's funny to hear how the journey of, of teachers in the profession has has almost mirrored the journey of the toolkit in, in also trying to get to that, that greater depth. Um, I wonder if you could talk through some of the, the findings in the new toolkit that you found most interesting. I think for me is the, the update to the um, teaching assistant interventions, and that was a particular interest for me. Um, and the four months plus progress is really encouraging. I think we know that the deployment of teaching assistants um, can vary widely across schools. Um, and I do think that this update is a really clear message that how they are deployed is crucial um, and that better quality training support now really does need to be prioritised by school leaders. Um, and one of my responsibilities with my literacy leader hat on is to ensure that we're delivering high quality literacy interventions. So the update's really relevant for me. Um, and during the past 12 months, when we've been trying to grapple with you know, partial school closures, we've tried really hard to increase our capacity to deliver interventions in readiness for this academic year. Um, so I know that this update is going to help me, but hopefully will help other school teachers um, to continue to prioritise both better deployment of teaching assistants, um, as well as investing more in their professional development, you know, their entitlement to um, a CPD curriculum as teachers are. That's really interesting on the TA strand, because that's the strand that when we launched probably in 10 years ago caused the most controversy because it was initially zero months impact, which was not a particularly popular um, result. And um, it's it's great to see that that actually being patient with the evidence is so important. And the fact that the evidence moved on and, and actually building that evidence, particularly around some of the EEF funded evaluations for those structured and targeted interventions. And it's probably the area that with the new toolkit, we're most happy that we can begin to show what's going on behind the average, because when you just look at the average, it can sometimes hide that variation in practice between that everyday classroom uh, interactions and, and the structured targeted deployment of TNs. I think I, I totally agree with that, John. And um, as a metacognition super fan, um, I think I, I really agree with that as well. The need to get underneath that, those um headline figures that make everybody suddenly think, you know, let's, let's start doing loads more of this. Um, I think for me, some of the things that I love from the, the new updated toolkit, um, very much like you say, for getting deeper beneath things is I love the new behind the average section. I think that's brilliant, just going into a bit more detail there. So as I say, for math, metacognition, it, it's talking there about the need to consider phase differences. Um, it's talking about the need to consider different subjects as well. Um, and, and the other tool that I really love on the new, to, new toolkit is the, the school leader reflection tool. I just think that is such a useful tool with some great reflection questions, really encouraging school leaders to take some time and reflect. And I think that the need around the toolkit is to consider your own context. 
and just think about, well, actually, how does this fit with us? How does it fit with the things that we're already doing in our school? How does it fit with some of the things that maybe we need to stop doing? Um, so I think there's some great new, um, new tools within the toolkit um, that are just going to help people to do that and start to dig a little bit deeper. Um, I do think, though, despite that, it is remembering that, that the toolkit is that, that brilliant gateway and it gives those great best bets. Um, and, and it's really important to do that. But as I say, keep coming back to the idea of thinking about, but how about my own context? Let's not just take these and think, um, let's pick them up and drop them into our school and, and really think about um, the guidance reports that give us a bit more detail, a bit more actionable recommendations around them, um, and, and just continuing to encourage people to, to think more deeply. So, so I think that's so important with the reflection resources, particularly is that focus on professional expertise, because we've moved forward and the evidence base around the toolkit has got better and we've been able to talk in more granular detail. But I'd hate to think that that meant that people thought we were saying, if you're a maths teacher, you must do this or you, you have to do metacognition or you have to do feedback and you'll definitely get this month's progress because one of the striking things in the new toolkit when you look at the technical appendices is the sheer variation in practice and impact behind those studies and actually you know we may get more details and maybe toolkit 4.0 will have a bit more detail and 5.0 will have even more detail but we're never going to get to a world in which we can say this is exactly what's going to happen in your classroom. So I'm really excited about things like those reflection tools that encourage that discussion and, and that professional expertise. And, and we've just got to be so careful at saying the toolkit is not a substitute for that professional expertise. Um, I think that, that dialogue is yeah. so important, isn't it? And actually, one thing, you, you know, as one practitioner with two classes, something won't work the same way, you know, within the same school, the same teacher. So I think it's like you say it's just having that conversation around that um and not expecting something to have that impact understanding the evidence to, to that level I think that's a really good point and it's so important that's a two-way conversation as well because it'd be really easy to just have it as here is the evidence please reflect on it but I think one of the things that we've got to be conscious of in the future is there's 30 topics in the toolkit what are the next things where we need to really listen to the practice and the, the teachers and, and work out what needs adding? Because as, as much as the studies within each topic don't stay static, the, the practices also aren't static and, and we need to constantly evolve. And historically, we've added a few topics, but I'm sure there's, there's many more to come. So I think you've both talked about um, dialogue and, and, and getting to grips with the complexity of the evidence. And We've also talked right from the start about time and, and, and busy school leaders and not kind of going for that surface level, you know, six months progress. We're going to do that next week type of scenario. What what support factors do you think are necessary for school leaders and teachers to not engage with the toolkit, certainly, and make some you know, meaningful decisions and best bets from that, but also just more broadly you know, transferring evidence into practice? I think, I think for me, Alex, first and foremost, I think the, the toolkit in itself is a support tool, uh, you know, a starting point for, for school leaders. And I think the way I've used it and the way I've found it most useful over the past, you know, four or five years, really, is um, to help me kind of prioritise areas for school improvement. You know, if you're um, in a really um, challenging um, context, 
maybe challenging circumstances. It can be quite a busy, noisy environment, and it's sometimes very difficult to, to know what to invest your time and your budget and your energy into. You know, that's a real challenge for, for many schools. Um, so I think in itself, it's a support kind of tool. Um, but I think, you know, looking at the, the, the new updates to the toolkit and, and building on what Julie was saying earlier on about the behind the average section, um, I think that's a really useful um, tool now for, t for schools in terms of, you know, looking at that um, comparison of impact across key stages and, and looking at which subjects is it most likely going to have a positive impact on, um, you know, and what are the effective lengths of interventions, things like that. So, you know, thinking about fidelity of intervention programmes and so on. Um, but I think in terms of kind of other considerations around support, um, I think, you know, once you've kind of delved into those related studies and looked at the guidance reports, I think lots of school leaders are going to find that there's going to be, you know, further training needed to develop expertise, um, you know, thinking about principles of good professional development um, so that they can transform that evidence into that effective classroom practice. I couldn't agree more, Sarah, with everything you said there. Um, the need to have time to, to look at this and, and discuss it and really collaboratively um, and talk about, well, actually, how does this look for our children, um, you know, across the school and across different subjects um, and, and that training um, for all practitioners, um, you know, not just teachers, but, but everybody who engages with the children. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't agree more with everything that you said there, Sarah. Yeah, that, that last point about audience as well, you know, we can't talk about TA deployment and unless we're engaging in that conversation with TAs and perhaps school governors, I'm, I'm sure policymakers and, you know, kind of trust leaders and, and local government might be interested in the kind of the parameters and the best bets and, and, and that behind the average subtlety and nuance that I think for me is, is, the, is the biggest and most crucial development. So my, my final question it is related and it's there's a new section um, on each of the strands about implementation. Um, and I think one of my understandings you know, over the past few years is just thinking about sometimes, you know, it's a strand. It's got this kind of notional positive um, likelihood of progress by, you know, however months. And yet it will stand or fall by the quality of how well it's implemented and sustained within within the daily work of teachers in a school. What are your reflections on, on implementation, you know, if it's presence in the toolkit and just more broadly kind of as it applies to your work? I think it's become so much more of a, a discussion point, hasn't it? We've, we've really started to recognize that it's, it's not just the what, it, the how is just as important. Um, and so really having those conversations around that. Um, I often like to think of it as, um, as a silly example, but um, if I, I love interior design. If I'm flicking through a magazine and I see a beautiful chair, um, and then if I were to buy that and it plonks into my house and be like, oh, it doesn't look quite the same here, you know, without those incredible curtains behind it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the same here. It's just the idea of just picking something up that you've seen work somewhere completely different and dropping it into your own context 
it actually, when we really think about that, of course, it's not going to have that, that same impact, or it's highly unlikely to. We need to really think about, well, what are all the other things that go around it? What do I need to think about in terms of my own context to make this work? So I think it's, it's brilliant that the updated toolkit is really starting to, to um, shine that lens and say, you know, just think about that through everything. Think about implementation. I agree, Julie. And it always makes me think about that, um, you know, the shiny silver bullet that's launched on inset day that everybody's forgotten about by Christmas. And, and it's because, as you say, you know, very often we're so focused with the what and what we're going to implement and, you know, what that's going to look like, but not necessarily how and the process. And I think, you know, having worked with, um, you know, a lot of primary schools up in Lancashire quite recently, um, you know, whether it was on literacy or, or looking at how to close that disadvantage gap, one of the things that um, leaders really appreciated was that that time and that opportunity to talk about those key challenges they've got getting going and it's those questions around, you know, implementation. Have you got the good foundations? Are they there already? Um, you know, and it's really helpful to work out whether you're not, whether or not you're ready to actually implement that. Um, so I think for the new uh, implementation kind of section of the, the toolkit, I think that's really useful because it will, will really guide schools through that process of, you know, diagnosing what the problem is to start off with but then really exploring how that intervention might work for their context and then ultimately making those evidence-informed decisions about what comes next. Thank you, Sarah. I, I mean, what strikes me um, and what gives me confidence is, you know, how both of you have, have explained, you know, your work within your school and with other schools, you know, around the country and regionally and locally, this kind of, this growing recognition of these these important factors, the what and the how, you know, the digging beneath the headlines, better understanding these concepts. And, and there feels like there's a positive journey of, of evidence into practice and the toolkit and the developments there seem to be mirroring that. I think that was your point, John, the kind of this positive um, journey. So on that positive note, uh, just to say a big thank you. Um, we're really delighted that Alongside your brilliant work in schools, you're able to inform what we do at the EF and make sure any of the evidence that's generated is really appropriate and, and useful and actionable and accurate um, and meets schools where they are. So thank you for being here on the podcast and, and for your contributions as well to this positive development of evidence into practice. Thank you so much for having us. Um, it, it's just been a great opportunity to to share some of our reflections um, and really excited to start using the updated toolkit with, with more um, practitioners. Yes, thanks, Alex. And thanks, John. Exciting times to come this year. So, John, it's time for our final thoughts and lots to go on there. I think for me, just absorbing the kind of the the story and narrative and the development of the toolkit from Steve and some of the technical challenges and and you know kind of exciting developments there, but then also hearing from Julie and Sarah about the kind of reality of this in practice, it it seems to me that the story of the last ten years and 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 then also the last three and a half pretty much of of version three of the toolkit shows a uh, just increasing engagement with evidence. And also a kind of a, a willingness and an engagement with the complexity of evidence. So, so the headlines, you know, perhaps it was 10 years ago, that headline about TAs 
led to some kind of real simplifications and some headlines that were pretty unjustified. But now we've got both reflected in the toolkit, but also reflected in the profession. We've got a, a deeper understanding, more questions being asked, um, and more nuance and complexity. And I think that can only be a good thing. And, and that's where evidence really can support that professional judgment. I think that's right. And it, it is amazing. I think 10 years ago, if you told Steve that you'd have kind of approaching a million page views a year and 70% of, of school leaders looking at the resource, I don't think anyone would have believed you. I don't think there's anything like that in any system. And, and that's a real reflection of the passion and, and use of evidence in the English education system. Um, and then the responsibility of, of us in the evidence synthesis team and, and Steve is to, to then deliver a resource that, that can respond to that, that genuine curiosity and, and passion and interest in the evidence. And I think that that story of, of moving beyond those overall headline figures, those averages that, that maybe simplify um, to begin discussing the nuance, begin exploring behind those headlines and those averages is, is such an important step and, and a necessary step that, that we needed to do to, to respond to the profession. And I think it's, um, it's really exciting to think where we might go from here. I think um, we're never going to have a detailed map that tells you everything, um, and we shouldn't. Um, Steve often likes to talk about a, a kind of mapper Monday where he gradually is filling in more details and it's always not quite there um, but I think that engagement and interaction with the profession um, and having people that can navigate those maps and, and think about the way that things are applied in different contexts is is such an exciting development and, and hopefully this collaboration between evidence and the profession has has a long way to go yet. Yeah thank, thank you and thank you for our collaboration as, as co-hosts um, you know, very happy to welcome you back in, say, 2027 when <laughs> version four uh, of the toolkit goes live. Thanks, John. Thanks, Alex. Um, and just for our regular listeners and, and any um, new listeners to the podcast, please do subscribe. Um, you know, we've got real um, broad um, regular audience now and, and hopefully that will just continue. And we've got a really interesting podcast coming up. So, um, if this podcast is about the new toolkit, we've now got um, a new updated guidance report on professional development alongside a systematic review of professional development. And I think it's pretty essential that as a profession, we engage with this. It's so it's really a crucial piece of work. So do listen in, subscribe, and then that podcast um, will arrive for you to, to engage in all things evidence into action. So thank you for listening.